from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Charlotte Thomason, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta. We are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. While you listen to this week's episode, consider your connection to this land, the connections of those that came before you, and the connections of those that will come after you. This week, we're bringing you some recordings from the City of Edmonton's Change for Climate Talks that took place on October 3rd, 2019. Terra Informers Sonic Patel and Elizabeth Dowdell attended the event and were able to listen to the speakers discuss the climate crisis and the challenges and opportunities to address it. In this week's episode, we focus on how our homes and the urban environment can be more sustainable. We'll hear from Jocelyn Crocker and her experiences as an urban farmer, and from Kenton Zurbin about his ideas about the potential of tiny homes. Now we're going to hear from Jocelyn Crocker. too many seedlings and wondered if I would like to have one. I had no idea what I was doing, so I planted it, neurotically watered it, documented every flower as it emerged. And then I wondered, with what started out as a teeny plant became nearly taller than I was. I wasn't truly hooked, however, until I bit into that first ripe tomato. And after that first taste, I asked myself a question. How do I grow more food? I didn't know it at the time, but that question was a turning point in my life. Flash forward 15 years, and I have an urban food forest in my front yard. My husband and I got rid of our front lawn and replaced it with an orchard of fruit trees and shrubs. When we planted all of it, we asked ourselves, how do we grow more food? So we got honeybees to help pollinate those fruit trees. We participated in the Edmonton's Urban Beekeeping Pilot Project and helped change the bylaw in 2015 to allow beekeeping in the city. Thank you all for your work with that. (laughs) Um, With all of this produce, I ended up with a lot of yard waste. So I became a master composter recycler in order to learn how to convert that waste into a rich soil amendment that would help us grow more food. I helped start a community garden in my neighborhood called the Sunshine Garden and loved it so much I became its coordinator last year. I'm also in a chicken cooperative with my neighbors and together we spoil four backyard chickens in exchange for eggs and lots of fertilizer. (laughs) I didn't set out to become an urban farmer, but I'm now that person who ends up with too many seedlings and gives them away. Now, looking beyond my property line, it turns out that asking how we might grow more food is an important question for everyone to consider. 
Here in Alberta, they predict that we will continue to receive more rain when we don't want it and not enough when we do to grow crops. It was a tough time to be a traditional farmer this year with the 55 days of rain we experienced in the summer. Now, food production is not just an Albertan problem and it is connected to greenhouse gas emissions. Take this apple I brought on stage. According to the sticker, it was grown in New Zealand in what I assume is a large monoculture farm. It was harvested, stored, packaged, shipped, and then flown to my grocery store, which I drove to in order to get this snack. This apple represents many of the reasons why global food production is a driving factor in greenhouse gas emissions. It is tasty though, isn't it? That's why I bought it. Well, scarcity demands creativity. Many vegan baking recipes came from the war era when there were no eggs or butter available. So the time is ripe, pun intended, <laughs> for some creative, proactive actions. And while climate change is impacting food production, I wonder if we might flip the equation where local food production might help mitigate some of the effects of climate change. Take this other apple. This apple was grown in my front yard, in which we have more than 20 varieties of fruits and vegetables. Rainwater is what watered my apple tree. The honeybees I have help pollinate it. The compost I create from my food scraps help fertilize it. And all I needed was a little space and patience, and this apple required no greenhouse gas emissions to get to my plate. In fact, thanks to photosynthesis, it even absorbs some. So what does participating in local food production look like? Well, beyond having a vegetable garden, which is fabulous, it can also involve having chickens or bees like I do, which is a growing trend. As of this year, the city has issued 221 bee licenses and 89 chicken licenses. It can be simpler. Grow a few pots of lettuce on your windowsill. Purchase your produce from community-supported agriculture projects like Riverbend Gardens or visit a local farmer's market. Support restaurants that use locally sourced meats and vegetables or join one of Edmonton's 90 community gardens if you don't have space or in my case run out of growing space. In fact, Participating in local food can be as simple as checking where your apples come from and picking the one that's from the nearest region. There are benefits far beyond reduced greenhouse gas emissions for this. First of all, biodiversity is the sign of a healthy ecosystem. Monocultures, like lawns, are food deserts for most of the year. The more types of life you see in a space, the more types of critical life you can't soil microbes and fungi, worms and other decomposers, pollinators, insects, birds that feed on those invertebrates, healthy biodiverse ecosystems are more resilient in the face of climate change. Growing your own food also retains water more than traditional urban landscapes. Gardens can act as water sinks, which can help prevent flooding. This in turn creates rich, moist soil that is alive and capable of sustaining more types of life, like food. Demand for local food also fosters and strengthens the growth of local food economies. 
Your individual purchasing power is stronger than you might think. Single-use plastics like straws weren't eliminated by Edmonton, uh, by Edmonton businesses until there was strong local demand from people like us for better alternatives. Finally, and most importantly, local food builds community. We can't change this climate crisis on our own. Buying your carrots from the person who grew them or showing up for a community garden work party evolves those individual consumer demands into something larger and much more powerful than the sum of its parts. Climate change mitigation is a multifaceted issue with no simple, single solution. It's such a complex issue that I can't wrap my mind around it and honestly, it keeps me up at night. So if you're asking yourself, if you're like me, you're wondering, what can I do, me, one of nearly 8 billion people? One of the answers is this. Why not use our private and public spaces to grow food instead of lawns? Now, I'm not saying a homegrown tomato or apple can help change the world, but what if it could? What if we redirected all of the resources that municipalities and individuals put into lawns? all that time and energy and water and money, and we use that to grow food. Let's plant apple trees instead of Dutch elm. Let's choose Evans cherries instead of mountain ash. Let's water vegetables in pots instead of annual flowers. Let's create naturalized spaces that enhance biodiversity. Let's embrace dandelions and the critical Jocelyn Crocker talking about urban agriculture. Continuing on the trend of making our homes more sustainable, here's Kenton Zerbin talking about how tiny homes can help reduce our carbon emissions. tonight has largely centered around conserving and reducing, reducing, and sometimes that, that negative thing of, of taking away is, is not necessarily very exciting. And so I want to challenge us to think, how do we live big in a way and save the world at the same time? And how could housing be a potential solution for that? So I'm going to break this into three parts. I'm going to tell my story a little bit and how I've tried to go change the world kind of thing, and then how indeed we chose to have a tiny house as a way to live our values. And I'm going to show you some pictures, give you a little tour. And then I'm going to dive a little deeper and show you how tiny homes can be a solution for a lot of different things, including saving people. So my story. Indeed, I mentioned that I started my career as a teacher. And when I got to the education system, I was a little pumped up and jazzed to be a teacher. And then I went, why are we teaching this? Are we preparing kids for tomorrow? And I didn't have a good answer. And with a situation like that, you can't stay in the education system very long. So I'm a passionate educator, but I'm lacking a curriculum. So I start going looking for something else to teach. 
And uh, part of my journey in that was actually taking the same master compost recycling system Jocelyn mentioned earlier. Kudos to Evans and Fabian. That started my journey in a certain sense because I went, okay, this is a cool skill set. Making soil again, I'm an avid word composter still to this day, as you can see. Um, but the conversation there is still about reduction. How do we reduce our garbage? How do we reduce these materials? Not proactive, not, not how do you build a life, so to say. So I had to go search for something else and came across this field of design called permaculture, which is all about designing humans back into their physical and social world. It was exactly what I was looking for. It changed my life, it changed my career, and I wanted more. A two-week course was the tip of the iceberg. So I went to Australia, went there for a year, got certified as an international teacher, and studied and looked at how different people had set up their homes, their food systems, their community systems, these holistic answers. Now, coming home from that, <laughs> subtropical Australia, not the same as Canada, kind of had to relearn a few things. Uh, so I spent a year studying across Canada. How do we grow our food here? How do we build our homes? And learning from other leaders. Now, I had an amazing opportunity to come across my lap before I could come back home and start teaching you guys and the public about it, and the job opportunity was to go to Barbados. Just my arm. <laughs> We got UN funding, government support, and I got flown in to help start a school for permaculture. It was like my dream job. It was perfect. It was amazing. Um, and in the short span, just two, two years, we trained over 100 permaculture designers on the island. Young entrepreneurs, we're calling agropreneurs, to reinvigorate the agricultural sector. Basically, young people don't want to be in farming anymore. And there's an association there with slavery with it. So how do we change that? Well, we can show it's sustainable, that it's fun, that you can make money, that you can live with your environment and meet your needs. Um, and that was an amazing experience. Coming back home from that, I, yes, sweet home, Alberta, Edmonton, this is where I grew up. Uh, I started my business teaching other people how to put their homes and gardens and their landscapes in order. So that's a little bit how I got to be in front of you here today. And I want to share with you quickly before I jump to the tiny house side and how that was the model I chose, a little bit of some projects locally, which when they asked me to present, I was like, oh man, there's all these things I want to share. Um, so here's some cool pro uh, projects right close to home for you guys to check out. They're public, they were done on a shoestring budget, and all of you are to go to welcome and eat the food that's produced there. Uh, maybe some of them, no, take it all. It's for schools too. <laughs> so the first one is the St. Albert Food Forest, and I've been a part of this project for three or four years now. And uh, it's on City of St. Albert land. And what we did is we got donated money, donated trees, donated recycled materials. I did a design for them. And then we installed the thing over four different events, blitzes, they're called, where the community installed it. And this is a completely edible public space you can go and check out. It's next to the grain elevators and the Meadowview Ball Diamonds. Go enjoy. <laughs> it's a food forest, by the way, and a budding one. So you will see that it is in succession. It is not quite full food forest yet, but it's getting there. This is Brander Gardens. Uh, it's a elementary school. And again, they brought me in. They went, we have this problem. We have this area which becomes a huge mud pit every time it rains, and we want to teach the kids about food. So what do we do? Turn into a food forest. <laughs> and uh, we had, they now have 200 linear feet of fruit, trees, and shrubs, 100 linear feet of raspberries, and 50 linear feet of raised garden beds. And if that wasn't inspirational for a school to have, we installed it in a single day with 80 community members. So go check that out. It's in Southside Edmonton, Brander Gardens. Maybe that's the one you don't eat all the food because the kids probably want some. 
Just this last summer, Waldorf School, uh, I ran my courses there, we installed it with my students, and then we also brought the community in and we brought the kids in. We basically made this incredible outdoor classroom space, including a sundial patio, 2,000 liters of rainwater storage, composting systems, and a food force that the kids helped plant. And again, public space, go check it out. We're still actually working on it. It just got more or less finished this past summer. So there's just a few, a few really cool projects that I wanted you to go know about and go check out. Because the answers are really, we've heard so much from our speakers, food is such a big part of it. We need to celebrate food spaces again and be a part of them. Let's talk about home. So what kind of house <laughs> does a teacher of uh, permaculture want? Well, our tiny house is what we chose. And I say our here because before I left for Barbados, I met a wonderful woman, and uh, she supported me in my values, and also she shared them. So she supported me to become the entrepreneur that I am, and uh, indeed, we took the leap to go tiny together. So here we are, uh, my wife Alyssa and I, and we took us eight months to design this house, eight months to build it, and now I'm living for two and a half years. It is an off-grid, hyper-efficient Canadian tiny house. It costs us $90,000 to build out of pocket. We have no debt. And um, yeah, it's got an incredibly light footprint. I'll talk more about that in a second. Let's give you a tour. So here it was at the Home and Garden Show a few years ago. That's why it's indoors in that picture. Um, <laughs> From below, I'm going to turn around here and kind of point everything as we go here. So, we've got a kitchen, C-shaped kitchen with a bedroom above with closed storage. Stairs that go down, storage inside of it. A table that pulls out with a bench underneath for extra seating. And a couch, which is a water tank. There's 2,000 liters of water on board this house, and that's how much we use every month. The average cane uses 354 liters a day. We use 2,000 liters as two people in a single month. Here you can see our... Um, <coughs> Living room setup pulled out. We can see eight people around this uh, table. <laughs> We've done it. <laughs> and it's got a full kitchen. So sometimes people think you have to compromise. It's not true. You pick what you value and you build around that. So this has more space than any apartment kitchen I've ever lived in. <laughs> full oven, five burner stove, a wood stove in the corner, double basin sink, apartment size fridge, and more counter space than we know what to do with. The bedroom is above it and the storage inside of it. And then the other side of the house is a loft with a bathroom below. And it's just a bare bones bathroom. It's where we compromised. Well, why go tiny? I want to I actually really stick this question in your brain. How can our homes help us live? For too long, we've had a one-size model that we've all had to ascribe to. And it involves getting into massive debt for 20 to 30 years of your life, getting a 9 to 5 job to pay it off, fill it with stuff, and heat it. And it doesn't even do a good job at being appropriate shelter. Where did we ascribe to this? Why, do, why are we questioning this a little bit more? So, indeed, your house can instead open up your life. Because when we're talking changes here in lifestyle and food and what you do with community, most of us feel strapped. But that's because of the house that we are living for, instead of it being a way to meet our ends. So think about it. The number one reason why I like to teach about tiny homes as a teacher of sustainable living is the environmental side. That you're using less building materials, and you better believe there's a massive footprint on building materials. They're shipped from all over the world. That you can now focus on quality things inside your house instead of quantity. So rather than getting an Ikea table or a Walmart table, get a handmade one from a local artisan. We did, we only have one table. <laughs> you can afford to get higher quality building materials. 
So for the nuts and the, and the crowd, maybe they're all nuts, I don't know. Maybe the nuts are the construction people in the, in the room. Um, we have R34 walls, no thermal bridging, R8 windows that are triple glazed, heat recovery ventilator. And what all that means is that we have a lot less heating. We spent $260 to heat our house, cook, and heat water for the entire year. Most people spend more than that in a single month for their heating alone. And that's because we chose to go high quality. Lastly, there's less footprint on the land itself. There's more room for the land to be land, which is not to be underestimated in a world that's increasingly becoming more dense. <coughs> there's lots of the reasons to go tiny, but obviously I come from that angle very strongly for environmental. There's people who don't want to have debt. There's people who want to focus on community and being involved and have more community time. There's people who are going, I want to spend more time with family, or I want to throw grandma in the backyard in a tiny house. Right? Assisted living right there. Or a kid that can roll away when you have, you know, get out of here. <laughs> just roll away. It'd be awesome. Health, that chemicals are a huge part of the problem with human health issues. Well, get the ingredients to your house to build one that doesn't have chemicals in it. And a tiny house allows you to afford that. Transition. Use this house as a means to get to a forever house. There are a lot of other houses that I love. I'm not going to stay in a tiny house forever. This is a house that me and I chose to have the transition model. So that we could go from this house to a forever home. And who knows what it'll look like? Maybe it was straw bale, maybe it'll be hyper-efficient. We'll take what we learned from this one. But transition is a thing for a lot of people. Minimalism, this stuff doesn't make us happy. So stop accruing it. Go get some, don't get less, just get less stuff. You don't need it. <laughs> Rental. Rentals. I mean, you can put it in a backyard and make more income. That's, why not, right? Most people are like, oh, that makes sense. Um, and for travel. Snowbirds and... People who are just going, you know what, the world is a big place and there's a lot to see. Why don't I get inside of my house and stop watching Netflix and go live it? <sighs> so how do you get one? Maybe I intrigued a few of you. <laughs> First and foremost, Edmonton is actually one of the most forward-minded cities in Canada right now for tiny homes. Go Edmonton. <laughs> it's not quite there yet. <laughs> for a few different reasons, but there is ways to get to it. I mean, legalities is huge, I can't go into it too deep right now. But one of the ways you can get a tiny house in Edmonton right now is classify it as an auxiliary dwelling unit. That means it's the second structure on the site, and call it a garden suite or a laneway house. Still has building codes and zoning implications, but there's avenues there. The other way is to get a variance or pilot project. This is getting popped all over North America. People are asking for change, and your city will arrive, but only if you're going to ask, and you do it the right way. Go rural. Get outside the city and go with the manufactured home. They follow a national building code, not provincial building code. They like a much smaller one, like a tiny house. Or you can also go with RV, which is also a national building code, but it comes with its own pros and cons because you are an RV, not a house. So there's just a few ways, guys, about how to get a tiny house. Hopefully I've inspired you a little bit and put this thought in your head about how can our houses be a solution to this big problem we have with climate change. Let's not look at it as just as a way to uh, make cuts in our life, but how do we instead live big? After his talk, Terra Informers Sonic and Elizabeth chatted with Kenton about his presentation and how tiny homes could be developed in Edmonton. Let's listen in. I was just wondering, from an Edmonton perspective, what do you think are some of the challenges of getting tiny homes kind of mass adopted by the public here? 
I think a lot of people struggle with the idea of living with less, that we define ourselves by our possessions. And I think that's something that, at the end of the day, we all realize isn't true, that the things we buy give us fleeting happiness. And the real happiness comes through community, through our hobbies, through connecting with our natural world. And that's something a tiny house really encourages, because you don't accrue the stuff, you have to get rid of it. And then you're not going to sit in your tiny house and spend all your hours sitting in your small space. You're going to get outside your house and go do more. Family, community, hobbies. I think that's a, a great way for people to open up their mind to the idea of what a tiny house is about. So I guess maybe you said that like a challenge with the culture of, of a city that for in a lot of ways is known for sprawling out and being so large. Yeah, there's lots of challenges at the rules side. Take for example that minimum house size has been constantly creeping over the last couple decades. And that's because it's determined by builders and developers who have a vested interest in selling houses that are bigger. And there's this keeping up with the Joneses thing that again, of that things don't make us happy. So what's happened is that it is no longer accessible to even have the bungalows of our grandparents. We need a variance for them or have to take an existing one and strip it down to the foundation to build an actual house that meets our needs. So indeed, there is some struggles from that rural side alone, but it is more sensible to move in the direction of a house that is technically tiny than it is in the McMansion side. And so we need more normalcy brought to our housing movement to go back towards what we actually need. And in your experience with uh, cities in North America or around the world, are you seeing planning frameworks change to start to accommodate these kind of alternative housing styles? Yeah, actually we are. People, the tricky thing is knowing what to ask for and how to ask for it. If you just go to your municipality and say, I want a tiny house, they don't have anything called a tiny house in their rules and they follow a, a provincial building code and they look to a national building code, even looks to an international building code. So you have, to, you have to kind of fit the rules and understand where they're coming from to get the change you need. So asking for variances in pilot projects, we're seeing those pop up here and there. Classifying it in another legal framework. So calling it not a tiny house, but a garden suite or a garage suite or a granny suite or a cottage house. These, these are t terminology that already exists in different building codes around North America. So we can, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel and make something brand new, call ourselves something slightly different and there's already rules for it. On more of like the economic market side, what do you think are some of the challenges and opportunities we're seeing from, from the housing market? I mean, <laughs> in uncertain times and with uh, often feeling strapped to uh, live the lives that we want to, I think that a tiny house is a solution for many people. They're very excited by the idea of having a house that can cost them under $100,000. Uh, that they don't have to get into massive debt, they're not going to pay so much to heat. Um, so from a financial side, there's lots of reasons to go tiny, uh, save money and whatnot. Uh, from, a, from a framework of even the real estate world, that gets even more, more interesting in a certain sense. Um, and it's good to note this to people who are interested in tiny homes. A lot of tiny homes are being built not as homes, as vehicles. They're on a trailer frame on wheels and they'll appreciate or depreciate just like a vehicle does. So you don't look at it as an investment in land because you're not buying the land that goes with it. And you have to look at it as an investment in your life, in cost savings every month, or in um, the other things that you're gonna choose to value and prioritize. So it's hard to put a, you know, a price tag on more family time and your hobbies and whatnot. But as soon as you start looking at it from a real estate perspective, you have to make a trade somewhere if you're gonna go tiny. My end comment would echo something I said in my talk that how do we have homes that help us live? 
instead of living for our homes. Uh, too many people have ascribed to this value or this, this model of getting massively into debt, filling it with stuff, and then paying to heat it, and it doesn't even do a good job at, at providing efficient shelter. So um, a tiny home is not for everyone, but we can definitely ask a lot more from our homes. That's all the time we have for this week. To hear more environmental news, including other thought-provoking presentations from the Change for Climate Talks, stay tuned to Terra Informa. Thank you to our volunteers for creating this week's episode. Terra Informa is entirely volunteer-run, and we survive because of generous donations to our host studio, CJSR 88.5 FM. Consider a donation to your local radio station to keep stories like this on the air. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason. Thanks for tuning in. And you can catch us next week right here on Terra Informa.